Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. I hope that you are well. And if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles. Exodus chapter 9, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, and the herds and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy Amen. Amen. So we've just read the the sixth sign, which means that we are now over halfway through the plagues and the signs of Egypt. That's good news. We're moving right along now into chapter 9. So again, there are divine purposes in these signs, right? There's divine purposes behind each and every one of those signs. Signs that we have seen and will continue to see. The first of those we've been seeing over and over, and we've had several sermons now on the sovereignty of God, his divinity and his kingship and his authority. It will be known, right? He says it over and over. Remember chapter five, Pharaoh said, I do not know the Lord. And God is saying, you're going to know me. But one way or another, you're going to know. In chapter six, verse seven, the Lord told the Egyptians, you shall know that I am the, or told the, uh, I'm sorry, the Israelites that you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the burdens of Egypt. So the Israelites, the Pharaoh, the Egyptians are all to know the name of God, to know that this is the Lord God. And we're going to see it continue throughout the rest of this section of the plagues. This repetition over and over time, over again, like 10 times. Is, is, is a sign to us and show to us, again, the intensity of God's desire for his name to be known and his name to be worshipped, that he is the Lord, that he is Yahweh, the I am who I am. And the way that the Egyptians will come to know him as he has decreed is that they will know him by the strength of his arm, by his judgment, by his Discipline And by his people, they will come to know him by his deliverance and by his redemption and by his love. And so we see the sovereignty of God over the heart of Pharaoh several times, right? Chapter, starting all the way back in chapter 4, verse 21, the Lord says to Pharaoh, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then 18 more times here in Exodus, 
Moses tells us and fills us in that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart or Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. The numbers, the repetition again tells us that this means something. That God is absolutely, without a doubt, sovereign. Without a doubt, over every heart. And he does as he pleases. This also tells us the condition of man's heart is hard. And is a stone against God. And therefore, we need him to transform our hearts. We need need him to breathe life and to give us to give us life, those hearts of stones to be turned into flesh. And then with the sovereignty of God, we see another purpose behind these signs, and that is the loving, redemptive work of God through judgment. The loving work of God of redemption to uh, uh, redeem his people through deliver or through judgment. As he's delivering his people, right? This is what's happening. He's delivering his people, redeeming his people. What is he also doing simultaneously? He's judging. He's destroying. And what is he destroying? He's destructing the evil systems and powers and the stronghold that are set up against who? Against him and against his people and against his kingdom. And so throughout these plagues, it's, just, it's very clear who these plagues are for, who they are directed to. It's directed toward Pharaoh, right? I mean, Pharaoh, let my people go. No, boom, against you. This is against Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And then we saw last week in particular, the very clear distinction that it's not against God's people. God's judgment is here. Listen, it is destructive. I mean, are we not just seeing destruction all in these passages? We see it also what it's doing. It's shattering evil and it's dispelling darkness. And through that, he's bringing about redemption. And eventually we're going to see light. Boy, this reminds us of something, doesn't it? This reminds us of the glorious work of God in his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. First Peter chapter 3, verse 22 tells us that as Jesus was resurrected, he has gone into the heaven and into the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. That means he is Lord over all. And then through the cross, the Son of God, he bore the judgment and wrath of God that was due to us so that we could be redeemed and we could be delivered. Substitutionary atonement. And then through the resurrection, he conquered death, destroying the work of the devil. He disarmed the spiritual forces and wickedness on our behalf, Colossians 2, 15. We are more than conquerors, as the Apostle Paul says in Corinthians. Why? Why are we more than conquerors? What is it about you as a Christian that makes you more than a conqueror? It's because of Christ. It's because of Christ, because he is the one who has destroyed our foes. He is the one who has conquered death and sin and shame and guilt. 
And so in these signs, in these plagues, God is, is tearing down Egypt and the destructive evil to what? To redeem his people. Salvation through judgment. And this morning, since we're about halfway through, I want us to pick up a couple lessons from this passage as well as from our others because they're thematically in all of them. I'm going to give you five lessons from these signs. But before we do that, I want to unpack this text and see how it's similar and also different from our others. It's split up into three parts, or at least I've split up in three parts. Verses 1 through 5, we hear the word of the Lord. Verse 6, we see the plague. And then verse 7, we see Pharaoh's response. In verse 1, it begins a lot like the other signs, right? The Lord speaks to, to Moses and he commands his prophet, Moses, go to, to Pharaoh and speak. Thus says the Lord, right? We've talked about this phrase before. This is that all-powerful phrase that, that prophets that come after Pharaoh, or after Moses, excuse me, will continue to use. Thus says the Lord. And, it, and, and once again, it's a reminder to us that, that this is divine revelation, This is the divine revelation of God. This isn't Moses speaking. This is God speaking through his prophet. Thus says the Lord. And so God is coming and he's speaking and he's making command to Moses. Now God's speaking is totally different from the way that we come and we we speak. Right? That, That comes at a totally different level of authority and priority. And we understand this because we have, we have built into our society these different levels of authority. We listen to our bosses. We listen to our parents. We are released to. We listen to our teachers. We sometimes, uh, par- uh, police and government officials. But, but, this is, but this is none of them speaking. This isn't thus saith the mayor or thus saith Pharaoh or the king or the president. This is thus says God. And if God speaks, then this is the greatest of all authorities and all of creation is to be subjected underneath that authority. And that is why we hold to such high esteem to God's word here at this church, because God has spoken right here very clearly for us to understand and we submit ourselves to it. And when any other authority tries to supersede or usurp the authority of God, then we do not listen. We politely disagree and say no. We have some great examples in the Bible of that. How about Daniel? Will not bow. Mm. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We can keep going. It is by that authority that God announces himself. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. And now he's used this name before, right, in, in announcing himself. But, but here in, with his divine name, it's I am. I am who I am, and I am the God of the, of the Hebrews. And I think there's something very poignant being said here. He's saying directly to Pharaoh, these slaves of yours, you know them as Hebrews, right? As your slaves in the land of Goshen who've built all of your stuff that you got going on, I am their God. 
I am their God and I am here to deliver them. And in the midst of that, right, God is saying, I'm God of the Hebrews, of these slaves, and he has already systematically just been destroying Egypt and showing his his power over Pharaoh and, and Egypt. And why again? So that he would be known. It also shows us that, listen, the Hebrews were not just a bunch of nobodies. How about that? They weren't just a bunch of nobodies, a bunch of slaves, a bunch of worthless people. But they are God's people. And he's clearly identifying himself with them. And that, again, is so significant. Brothers and sisters, often we forget or we like to just, or we forget, and we just put it on the shelf, and we forget that, that what Jesus has done for us, and that he has come, and he has come to dwell among us. Remember, we sing it at Christmas, O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us. And he is with us. I am the God of my people. I am, the, I am hither people, right? And he is the people of who? The church. I am the God of the church, of God's elect. And so what does God want from Pharaoh? Again, the same thing, the sixth time. Let my people go that they may serve me. What's the purpose behind redemption? The purpose behind redemption and the purpose of bringing his people out of bondage is so that they would serve him, which literally means to worship him, to exalt him, to make much of him. More on that in in a bit. And again, this is why we were created. This is why all humanity was created. This is why we were saved. This is why we were redeemed. This is the whole theme of the book of Exodus, is that we have been saved and delivered and redeemed for the glory of God. And so verse 2, let there be no doubt. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, Meaning there are going to be more consequences to your continual hardening of your hearts. And in short, it would seem again in this phrase, verse 2, we see God's mercy again coming through. Warning Pharaoh. Giving him a chance again to, to repent. This stern warning. To continue to go long, headlong into sin and the hardness of heart and unbelief and to reject the gospel and to reject Jesus Christ, that there are eternal consequences to such rebellion. And as Paul says in Romans 2, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance of patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Mercy and kindness, brothers and sisters and friends, are to lead us to repentance. As this warning goes, if you refuse, then. And the consequences to this unbelief, again, announced in verse 3, is just another plague, another sign. Behold, the hand of the Lord will fall. That's terrifying. The hand of the Lord will will fall and will be a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and all the flocks. And notice what the Lord is about that's describing will happen and have the words that he used, that the hand of the Lord will fall. And the intent of this image is meant to give us great fear. 
that of some of, of one that is not to be trifled with. It's metaphorical, of course. And it's a play off of, I think, Pharaoh thinking that he had a strong hand and a long hand that could bring about great power and conquer his enemies. But really, in these six signs, we see Pharaoh and his power has been nothing. He hasn't even showed up. He's like the, um, the, the gods of or the Baals at Mount Carmel. They didn't even show up, relieving themselves. No chance. And so the, the image here is a strong hand that comes down, like a strong hand coming down on the table. This is enough. You're demanding the attention and the command. It's a symbol of power that has come and will now bring about a plague upon their livestock, upon their cows, their donkeys, their horses, and camels, and herds, and livestock, which, livestock, which means everything, every animal, right? That covers all the animals in Egypt, except for maybe they're Siamese cats, right? Did they have Siamese cats back then? So see the escalation here. Not just frogs, gnats, and flies, but now this is a direct assault against what? Their personal property. Their, 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 their personal property. These animals were not pets, right? These animals were not pets, but they were life. They were sustenance. They were wealth. They were inheritance. They were power. They were food, they were clothing, they were transportation, they were security, and they were weapons. And if Pharaoh would not let go of God's property, then he would suffer the loss of his own. And Pharaoh, of course, being the king of Egypt, would have a tremendous amount of wealth and power and authority found in his livestock. In 1985, uh, cow and dairy farmers in in Great Britain began to notice that, that they had a problem. They began to notice that their cows were, were getting sick. Some of them were becoming emaciated, uh, a little bit physically weak, um, and then they began to act uh, erratically. And when, when describing the, how erratic they were, um, they, would, they described them as either being just absolutely terrified like if a cow could be terrified, the cow is absolutely terrified and, and fearful, or it would just be overly aggressive. And, and, and it was, and you, so you see these emaciated cows being fearful, being aggressive, something massive is happening. And what, what they found out was that there's this disease that they found that was spreading throughout the country and infecting all, the, all these different cows, because it's just kind of the way it was way it would be, was uh, called bovine spongiform, uh, some big word, endocoplathy. Maybe you can pronounce it for us later. There it is. She said it. I promise you she said it. <laughs> or, let's make it a little bit easier for the rest of us uneducated uh, medically, uh, would be mad cow disease. Would be mad cow disease. Uh, and this was really, really bad. Uh, they had to put thousands and thousands of cows down. They had to, they had to be destroyed Millions of pounds of meat had to be recalled and, and destroyed. Um, and it was a huge, huge problem. And the fear that, that spread across the nation, especially for the farmers and dairy farmers who, who were losing their cows and the potential of losing more and more. It was a huge hit to the economy, to the food supply, to people's livelihood. Um, and then, not to mention, the potential threat on human life. That's why they destroyed all the meat. And then in 1995... What they discovered was is that it had been spread to humans. 
And how it had been spread to humans was through eating contaminated meat. And the symptoms were, were terrifyingly very similar, right? People going mad because this disease basically attacks the, attacks the brain tissue, literally turning it into like a sponge. Talk about fear that began to hit the world. And panic raced across Europe. Farmers, again, were, were, were decimated. But, but forget the farmers. We're caring about our own lives now. And our, own, and our own health, this disease that is spreading and people are getting it. What a terrifying way to die. How bad then must have been for Egypt to watch every single animal be plagued like this. And this judgment was not only on their wealth and power, but again, as we've been seeing, is, was a judgment on their religion. The Egyptian gods, believe it or not, had livestock depicted as some of their gods and some of their goddesses, right? They had a god who, who was a bull, who again was this fertility god that would give vitality and life. And the chief of all of those uh, cow gods was the bull Apis. And he had his own temple in, in, in Memphis, not Tennessee, but in Egypt. Or it might be one in Tennessee, but, but, in, um, but in Egypt. And the priests would have to keep a live bull there. And they would say that this bull was the incarnation of this god, Apis. And, and I guess that when that, that, that cow would die, you know, they would be kind of like the parents with the goldfish, right? All oh, the goldfish is, oh, it's just okay, it's sleeping. And they go to the pet store to buy another one, put it, I guess that's, guess that's what they had to do because how can an incarnate bull just die? And by the way, this is why the Israelites fashioned on Mount Sinai, their own God in the image of a bull. It's what they knew. Cattle laying down on every farm and at the temple, farmers anxiously watching them die. Horses die, camels die, donkeys die, getting sick, growing weak, and they could not do anything about it. I like what Philip Riken said here. He said, to their shame, priests saw their holy cows staggering around their sacred pens until they fell down dead. God was proving himself to the Egyptians on their own terms, exposing the cult of the cow as a false religion. And so in verse 4, for the second time, the Lord wants it to be clear, right? And so he announces to Pharaoh again that he's making this distinction between the livestock of Egypt and the livestock of Israel. Israel's animals that they had possessions of, the ones that they depended upon, the ones that they, they farmed and would care for them and, and sustain them would be spared, but not Egypt's. They were going to die. And we're going to talk more on that distinction in just a little bit, but quickly, what is God showing Egypt and Israel here? Again, that he is sovereign, that he's in control, that he's the one who chooses, and he chooses who he wants to choose. He will set his people apart because he is delivering them as he is judging Egypt. God discriminates because he is God. In verse 5, God announces his timing again. And I find this to be just amazing. Tomorrow. I love that. Tomorrow. Right? Tomorrow. And I think the Lord again is poking at at Pharaoh, because if you remember back when, when Moses was praying for Pharaoh, he said, when would you like the frogs to be the left? And Pharaoh said, ah, tomorrow. And so here's God saying, tomorrow, tomorrow your, your animals are going to die. And God is saying this because he is God and he can say tomorrow. And why can he say tomorrow? Because he's omnipresent. 
He is omnipresent, which means he does not have size or spatial dimensions, and he is present at every point in space with his whole being, yet he acts differently in every in different places. Again, let me translate that for you, which means he is not limited by time nor space because he is the creator and sustainer of time, and so it will be tomorrow. And as we see in verse 6, guess what? It was tomorrow. Tomorrow became today, and now they died. The Lord did this thing, and the livestock of Egypt all died, but the livestock of Israel did not die. And then verse 7, the insanity and the tragedy of of, of the heart of Pharaoh. And and, and you see here something different. What does he do? He says, says Pharaoh sent, which means he sent an investigative team, right? He sent his CSI team over into Goshen and, and find out, Are their cows really still alive? Did God's word really say that he was going to distinguish between the two? And what did he find? Of course, he got the answer. The evidence was clear. Death everywhere else. Cows are dead and dying, but Israel's are fat and happy. But as we read, what has happened to Pharaoh? He changes nothing. He doesn't change from his course because he is on a path of absolute self-destruction and dragging everyone else with him. That's our passage, right? We unpacked it, spent quite a bit of time there, but let's look at the five lessons from these signs that I have for you. The first lesson is, is we see the meaning of salvation. First lesson, we see the meaning of salvation. Again, as we, we traveled so far in these signs now, right? Five weeks, six weeks, something like that. And we see it again this morning. Well, again, the purpose of these signs. Certainly for the glory of God. These signs have been for the glory of God through judgment. We've already talked a little bit about this. Through judgment, the Lord is accomplishing redemption, salvation for his people. We've seen earlier in Exodus that, that God announces that he has come and he has seen his people and he will be with them. God is now speaking through his prophet Moses and he sends his prophet. You remember those three chapters, that ordeal of Moses not wanting to go and then he goes and he doesn't want to go? Yeah, he says God sending his prophet. And he's working then all of these supernatural miracles of judgment and for why? Again, to deliver his people, to save his people from bondage, to bring liberty to the captives, quoting from Isaiah. The whole lesson in the sovereignty of God has been something that we have just been marveling in, right, over these last couple weeks. But listen, the sovereignty of God isn't just some arbitrary doctrine that we learn so that we can be prideful in. That would be stupid. That would be a waste. In fact, that would be a Pharisee. But what it does in us, it helps us to marvel in something because there's a direct application to the sovereignty of God. And that is how it is for the salvation of his people. And if that's where it's applied in, then our hearts just leap with joy. Because he wants us to know who he is. He wants you to know who he is. And he's worked worked all of these things. He's orchestrated every little piece in your life so that you would know who he is. 
And he's sovereign over these acts of judgment because he's God and he's saving his people. So as he was sovereign in the, in the work of, of, of putting his son to death and the resurrection of his son, again, that is putting his sovereignty and his control and his, and his power all leveraged that we would know him, that his people would come to him. Amen. And this drama, this whole thing that we've been watching, this building up, doesn't just lead to the exodus out of Egypt, but rather, brothers and sisters, it is preparing the way for the coming of the Son of God. It is preparing the way for for Jesus Christ, who, who will come and lead like Moses triumphantly leads his people out of Egypt. Jesus Christ who will lead all of God's elect through the true exodus. And by his suffering and his death on the cross, there is this lamb who is led to the slaughter. Jesus who's broke the power of sin and death. And he brings sinners like you and like me out of bondage so that now by faith alone, we trust only in him and in his work alone. Jesus Christ for our salvation and he will save us. That's what we have believed by faith. We see it by God's word. He has sovereignly worked out all of those things in our lives. And so we have believed and he has changed us. He has transformed us. He has renewed us and redeemed us. Now listen to this from Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time have come, tomorrow, he sent his son. Actually, it was yesterday, right? We're living in the afterlife. He sent his son, who's born of a woman, born under the law. Verse 5, to redeem. Right? The whole exodus, boom, is just put right there. Galatians 4. To redeem what? Those who were under the law. That was us. We were under the law, the curse of the law, bearing down on us. The wrath of God would be poured out on us. If not for his mercy and his love and his grace, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Look how glorious this is. My people, the God of the Hebrews, right? The God of his church. Verse 6 And because you are sons, listen, God has sent you the spirit of his son, the Holy Spirit, right? Into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And this is amazing right here. Verse seven. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We see built into all of this, the meaning of salvation for us. And there at the cross, There at the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God. And as he looked on and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I think he's saying almost the same thing that Moses was saying over and over again to Pharaoh. Let my people go. And then when he was resurrected, he showed his his victory over our captors and over sin and death. Praise the Lord, brothers and sisters, salvation has come. And the second lesson that we see from, we see is the purpose of salvation. We saw the meaning of salvation, now the purpose of salvation. The purpose of salvation, as we've already explained, is the purpose of Exodus. Is that we are saved for the glory of God. 
into this, into our purpose as well to give, is to give glory to God. Jesus Christ has set us free from sin and death so that we can do what? We can worship him, but what does that look like also biblically? It's to serve him, to love him, and serve the living God. He is both our Savior and our Lord. We turn to him not only to deliver us from our slavery to sin, but, we, but also for everything else that follows. Our whole lives, the, all the fruitful work in worship is for him and for his glory. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It's what we've just been talking about. Verse 12, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to what? To the praise of his glory. Not ours. We don't bring anything of ourselves. We don't boast in ourselves, but we boast in him. We look to the praise of to his glory because he's the one who, who transformed us from death to life. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, verse 13 in Ephesians 1, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, faith, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. We just read that sort of in Galatians 4, verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we gain possession of it to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. And so with this, we can say sola deo gloria, right? To the glory of God alone. Because the purpose of our salvation is for his glory. The purpose of your redemption is for his glory. The third lesson, we see the destructive nature of sin. Six times now, hard-hearted Pharaoh does not obey the Lord's command. And again, for the sixth time, everyone besides the Israelites pay the price, don't they? And the plague today, it's the livestock. The livestock are animals, right? And they're put to death. And because of Pharaoh's sin, right? The, the livestock of Egypt are judged. And this reminds us again that the destructive nature of sin that has also fallen is also fallen on creation. And we, we know this certainly from, from Genesis chapter 3, but also, also all the way down in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul proclaims in that glorious chapter in verse 19, he says, For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption to obtain the freedom of glory of the children of God. The fall has impacted all of creation. Sin has completely fractured this world, all of humanity and creation. And I think the lesson here, again, is one that we often forget because there is a massive lie perpetrated by the evil one that we often believe all the time, including myself, is that we believe that sin is isolated. That sin can be isolated. There's a way that we can manipulate it in such a way where it's isolated and the only one that it's really going to affect is just me. And the reality of that is that it's an absolute lie. There is no sin that does not affect others. There is no sin that is not affecting someone or something in, other, in, in some way. 
Sin is destructive. And oftentimes it affects others, just like here. It's, it is the animals who are put to death. It is the animals that are, that are put to death. They are the ones who have to pay the higher penalty to, their, to our fleshly desires. Brothers and sisters, this, this should be a warning to us that we must be very careful and always take an account to our sin. It's easy to see others, right? We, we know it's easy to see others, but even our own and the effects that our sin has on others. How it will roll down on your family. How it will roll down on your children and your husbands and your wives and your friends and our church and in our community and culture at large are all affected by our sin. Brothers and sisters, let's... Let's pray for one another in such a way that our brothers and our sisters would not be adding to the groaning of creation by their sin and adding to the misery of others by your sin. But to seek through righteousness and holy lives by the grace of God to be building up the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of the darkness. The fourth lesson we see is joy of faith. We see the joy of faith. And we see this manifested not as a work of the people of Israel, but we see it in the sovereign choice of the Lord to make a distinction between his people and Egypt. Again, the ongoing theme throughout the Bible, we see it in Exodus and throughout the Bible, that God is always makes a distinction between who are his people and who are not his people. That very thing, that very, that very thought, right, the idea, because it's biblical, is built right into our ecclesiology as our church, right? We're we practicing biblical church membership, right? We, the, the ordinances of baptism of the Lord's Supper is for born-again Christians. The, the, the Lord in his providence as well makes a distinction for us, doesn't he? He makes a distinction between us and the world. It doesn't always look the same. It doesn't always mean that we're spared from sin, we are from pain. We talked about this last week. It doesn't mean we're always spared from suffering and, and the sin of others that feel like they can just walk in here and do whatever they want. We're not spared from that. We're not spared from suffering and loss. You look at the story of Joseph and, and the imprisonment of Paul. They weren't spared any, anything in particular. But we do see the eternal purposes that God had behind them, don't we? We see the eternal purposes of God in them and persevering them and to bring about sanctification and the preserving of his people. We see the preaching of the gospel that the Apostle Paul did in prison and then to take the gospel to, to Rome and to speak right to, the, right to Caesar and so much more. And just as protection from pestilence was, was only for those who trusted in the Lord God of Israel, now, brothers and sisters, we understand the free gift of eternal life is only for those who trust in his son, Jesus Christ. And as believers, we have that unique privilege knowing that God will keep us safe in his arms for all eternity. And on the day of judgment, when rebellious sinners will face the fury of God's wrath, repentant sinners that have faith in Christ alone and by his grace will be kept safe from the fires of hell. 
And so by faith, we have eternal joy. And the last lesson that I have for you this morning is that we will see, or that we see the consequences of rebellion. Again, Pharaoh is set up as that example for us over and over and over again. And what we also see here is, is, is God is that just because someone is stubborn in their rebellion doesn't mean that the Lord will quit on his judgment. You know, as a parent, sometimes we can be exhausted in the discipline of our own children to the point where, where we want to quit and, and then just to live to fight another day. Sometimes that's the way it feels like. But it's in that moment as a parent, and hopefully if you've ever gotten to this point, you know that this is it. Right? This is, in a sense, this could be the, the, the moment when I can either win or I can lose. When really it, it's all kind of staking right here. Whether if I'm going to stick with the discipline, if I'm going to be consistent, and if I'm going to follow through. Because this is what's going to make the difference in the short term and the long term. And just because Pharaoh is as hard-headed and hard-hearted and stiff-necked, God still perseveres. He doesn't give in. He doesn't live to fight another day, but he continues in his judgment all the way to death. The reality of man's rebellion against God. And I think even as Christians, we should, we should feel the weight of this. The reality of man's rebellion against God is that they will suffer his holy wrath eternally. It's not going to be frogs or gnats and flies. Or it won't be just the death of our wealth and animals and farms and whatever. But to all that have rebelled against him, his righteous judgment is coming. But praise the Lord. As Christians, as we've, we've come to know him by his grace and in his mercy through faith alone in Jesus Christ. As we have said earlier, Jesus, our prophet, our priest, and our king, he took our penalty. So that we could be adopted into his family as sons of God. And so let us ever be mindful that, that of these lessons that we have, we're learning and continue to learn and see them just thematically throughout the scripture. And may we never forget the meaning and purpose of our salvation, the destructive nature of sin. Oh, how it destroys. And yet the joy of faith. And lastly, let us always remember the, the, and bear the weight in a sense of the consequences of rebellion. Salvation has come through judgment to God be the glory alone. Amen. And all God's people say, Amen. Praise God.